there are very few people if you, if you talk to a Christian who's been a Christian for many years and they go I really blew up my, I messed my life up you know I really I really messed up I became a Christian <laughs> now you don't and try it you know try it ask a few but you know what is the I really you know I really did a uh, crazy thing I became a Christian you know people don't talk like that I just took it out there anyway I want to have three lines of evidence uh, if you like or reasons uh, this morning and these three things are scientific evidence historical evidence and experiential evidence Okay, so firstly, scientific evidence. Now, often people, when they hear the word science and God, think it's some sort of, um, they're diametrically opposed, they're complete opposites. You know, you can't talk about science and God. Actually, I think that's really unhelpful and misleading. Um, and it's not just the atheists like Dawkins who say things like, well, all scientists don't believe in God anymore which is nonsense, or sometimes it's Christians can feel a bit intimidated by that, and so they kind of say, well, science doesn't really help us. Well, actually, if you look at it, there's a lot to say that um, science is very helpful in giving intellectual reasons for the existence of God. Okay, you saw it with me. Um, now, there isn't a science experiment you could do, you know, in a test tube, say, so, well, let's put a bit of God in there, and... Uh, Okay, you can't do that. So there's an, there is not one thing that can prove God's existence 100%. But it's also completely misleading to say that scientists do not believe in God. Okay, that, and there are many leading scientists who actually believe in God, and many who are actually Christians. And I know this is uh, this may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I was I was really interested by this whole thing of well, is that really true? And so I've been doing a little bit of research, and there are loads of them uh, who are quite leading scientists. So I'm just going to list them. Now, you may find this boring, but just indulge me, okay? Just no. Okay, so there's this guy called John Polkinghorne. He's a professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge. There's a guy called Christopher Isham. He's professor of theoretical physics at Imperial College London. There's a guy called Ard Lewis, who is a theoretical physicist at Oxford. He spoke at um, a Church of Christ the King earlier this year. You can download his talk. It's very good, <laughs> um, if you're interested. Uh, John Barrow... Um, Professor of Mathematical Science at Cambridge. Uh, Catherine Blundell is a geophysicist at um, Cambridge. Sir John Houghton was a former professor of atmospheric physics. I can't even say the thing, I don't understand it. Uh, Atmospheric physics at Oxford, and he won the Nobel Prize for his work on climate change. And there's a guy called Sam Berry, who's a professor of genetics at UCL. There was another guy at Exeter, but I'd drop him off the list. Anyway, so... And I was looking... um, there's a Britannica guide of the top 100 scientists of all time, okay, which is obviously a long list, and you can quite easily show that all the guys with the early discoveries, a lot of them had a theistic worldview. People like Isaac Newton, Pascal, loads of them. Okay, but what about modern scientists on that list? Well, I was looking through this list, the top 100, and actually there aren't many that are recent in that list, and not many who've made discoveries that made that list, that makes sense. Um, but actually two of the most recent are both Christians. Again, despite popular belief. And this one guy is called uh, Dr. Francis Collins, and he is the head of the Genome Project, or was the head of the Genome Project, which was the biggest single scientific endeavour in, in recent times. So they tried to map 20,000 to 25,000 uh, human genes. That's all I'm going to say about that. But that, it's a huge thing. And he... he um, he headed that up, and he's actually a very strong Christian. He wrote a book called Language for God, A Scientist Presents Evidence 
for belief in God. Which, again, if you're interested, you can read. And there's another guy called Dr. Richard Smaley who was involved in um, discovering nanotechnology. Anybody know what nanotechnology is? Well, there's a few. Good. Would you like to come up? <laughs> okay, it's something to do with carbon. And if you hit carbon with a laser, it created this carbon-60. I still don't understand it. But anyway, it's, he was involved with that. And he got the Nobel Prize for Science in 1996, along with some others who were involved with that. Now, he became a Christian after years of, of not really believing. Um, and it was actually shortly before he died. He returned, so he returned to church... Um, to realise what all these people around the world saw in Jesus. And he came to a personal faith. And he says this, this was one of his final statements he made, it is increasingly clear to modern science that the universe was exquisitely fine-tuned to enable human life. Okay, so what is this that has become increasingly clear to modern science? Um, Well, first of all, the first thing then is, that modern science basically accepts that there is a beginning to the universe. Okay? Um, they didn't always think that. Apparently there used to be a theory that the universe was just static and just existed forever. But actually all that, modern science now believes that there's a beginning to the universe. Now, it does create some tension with how you interpret the Bible and different Christians take different views, particularly on the early chapters of Genesis. But you've got to get to the question, what was there before? If there was a beginning, what was there before? And a lot of people just go, well, yeah, well, you know, well, it doesn't really matter. But actually, logically speaking, intellectually, you have to come up with an answer. What was there before the beginning of the universe? Um, what, how did we get here is the real no, question. Okay, and a guy called Andrew Wilson is very good at explaining this, and I've basically cribbed some of his stuff, and I'll see if I can get it right. But there is a... There is strong evidence then. Okay, so first of all, the universe. And the second thing is there's strong evidence there's fine-tuning of the universe. And that, I'm going to read this stuff, otherwise I'm going to get confused. I'm <laughs> sorry. But it, it's really, it's, I've, I've been looking at all this and it's really done my head in. <laughs> some, of this, some of these numbers are very difficult to understand. So, anyway, bear with me. Um, so, physical constants are what? Well, physical constants are basically a physical quantity which is universal in nature and constant in time. For example, gravity. Okay, gravity has a physical constant, so it's around a million numbers, uh, and it, it has a specific number. Okay, this will make sense, but trust me. Okay, so there are various physical constants, and in fact, there are 15 of them that had to be exactly right for our universe to come into existence. Um, and again, I'm going to quote this guy who's the head of the Genome Project, Francis Collins. He says this, When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if we were, it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, the universe could not have come to the point where we see it. So, let me try and help you explain this. It's basically, if you imagine, it's like 15 huge wheels, the first 14 of which have like a million numbers on them. And you imagine the chance involved in trying to get these 15 all exactly right. So, you spin the roulette wheel, the first one with a million numbers, and it just happens to come on the right one. 
And then you do it on the next one. And the next one, the next one. And all, all, every single one comes to exactly the right figure for life to exist. You get the last one, it has a number which is 10 to the power of 60 on it. I can't even explain how big that is. It's a big wheel. Okay, and you spin that wheel. It's, that is the, cons, uh, what's the, it's the cosmological constant. Okay, So that one spins and that comes to exactly the right number. Now you then say, well actually all 15 had to do that. And you have to scientifically look at the probabilities of this and it becomes astronomical. Um, the probability that all those things could be right. And again, I'm going to read from one scientist here. He says this, to open a combination lock by chance with four dials, with ten digits on each dial, is a probability of one to ten thousand. So that's ten with four noughts after it, or one with four noughts after it, rather. Then, the Astronomer Royal, Lord Rees, has pointed out in his book, Just Six Numbers, that the balance between forces at the start of the universe had to be set one part in 10 to the power of 60, that's one with 60 zeros behind it, the precision required to hit a target one millimetre square at the other edge of the universe. That is the probability. Okay, and that's not even all the numbers. And there was another guy who said, that actually, if you took all the paper, there's probably about 10 to the power of 123. And I couldn't even understand what he was saying, because I'm... If I, I'll try and explain, but basically he said something like, if you took all the paper in all the, all the world and wrote zeros on it, that wouldn't be enough zeros. Now, I can't, that doesn't make sense to me, but that's what he said. And he's a really clever scientist. Anyway, so, Stephen Hawking, another clever guy, said this. He said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. So it's the... That is the evidence for life, okay. the scientific evidence for life. Um, now, it doesn't mean you can convince every atheist in all the world that God exists, because there are other rational uh, possibilities. Um, I'll give one, but interestingly, there's one guy who was um, called Anthony Flew, who was like Dawkins, the Dawkins of his day. And he, um, in 2004, in his 80s, has changed his mind and now says there is a God. Okay, he's not a Christian, he's a deist, but he, he says the evidence for the complexity of life is so strong that he says, I want to follow the evidence wherever it goes. Even if you get a lot of flack from other scientists for changing your mind, or other the- um, philosophical atheists, which he has done, but he says, I wanted to be open enough to change my mind, which I quite admire that view. But anyway, you can't prove it completely. And the options are chance, which, as we looked at just now, is really, it, that doesn't seem to make sense. So there's this other theory, which is the multiverse. I know others have spoken on this in church, but the multiverse theory is the only other really strong view that is held. Like Dawkins subscribes to this view. The multiverse theory, that for, their, for it to have worked, there must be a, a mo- an infinite number of universes that have either contracted or con- expanded or exist now but we can't see them which there is no evidence at all scientific, historical you know, there's no evidence at all for the multiverse theory but it's the only way if you want to put God out of the equation you say well no there isn't a God there can't possibly be a God well, uh, what? there must be a multitude of universes to create the probability that is actually logically where they go um, 
And, uh, and you can't say, well, that's not true. And uh, the guy called Alvin Plantinger, um, who again is uh, one of these leading uh, intellectual guys, and his stuff is very difficult to read and understand, so I don't recommend it. Uh, but <laughs> I tried, but I failed. Anyway, but he, he gives a very simple illustration, which I could understand, and it was this. He said, you imagine you find a poker player who gets 20 hands of straight aces. And, you, you, know, you know, the Wild West. And you're about to pull a gong on him. And he says, look, I know it looks suspicious. But what if there was an infinite succession of universes so that for any possible distribution of poker hands, there is one universe in which this possibility is realized. We just happen to find ourselves in the one where I always deal myself four aces without cheating. Now, you can't say, well, you, have cheat-, you, know, you can't say he's cheated, logically, but you can say, well, actually, it makes more sense. So that, I, hope that, I hope that's not... You can see I was struggling with it. Uh, so, um, so that's the first thing. So there's scientific, scientific, rational evidence that God exists, and there are many leading scientists who believe in a God. Okay? So you can't... When you say science says there's no God, it's not true. Okay? It's just atheistic spin. Good. Second thing, historical evidence. Now, this is where I think the, the arguments get really, really convincing if you're prepared to be open to changing your mind. Um, and I want to imagine you are Sherlock Holmes, okay? Or a member of CSI, if you like, and you're looking at the details of the evidence, all the, all the various things that uh, happened in the historical evidence for Jesus. And I think if you're prepared to do that with an open mind, the, the case is overwhelming in support of Christianity. But first of all, I want to look at two things, basically. I want to look at evidence outside uh, the New Testament, first of all, because some people say, well, I've got a problem with the New Testament. And then I want to look at evidence for the New Testament afterwards. So first of all, evidence outside the New Testament. Um, and basically, there are historical records written by people who are not Christians, not, uh, uh, but at a similar time, about Christianity. Okay? I want to give you a few examples. There's a guy called Tacitus, who was a historian. He lived from AD 56 to 120. Uh, and he writes directly about Christ and about the death of, of Christ at the hands of Pontius Pilate and then about the subsequent spread of Christianity. So that's a Roman historian. There's another Roman historian called Suetonius, who lived uh, AD 70 to AD 130. He was the chief secretary to Emperor Hadrian, and he writes about disturbances caused uh, in the name of Christ, and uh, also confirms that Claudius ordered the Jews to leave Rome in AD AD 49, which is something that happens in the book of Acts, in chapter 18. It's a little nitty-gritty detail. I probably don't need to share it, but there we are. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just trying to show you there's lots of evidence. So that's Tacitus Suetonius. Those are Roman guys. There's another guy called Josephus, who, again, was a Jewish historian. He wasn't a Christian, wasn't looking from a Christian perspective. Um, and he said this. He said, At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. 
concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. Okay, so that is three historical figures outside the New Testament who confirm that Jesus was a real person. In fact, when people come out with Jesus never really existed, they really are um, just not being very intellectual at all when they say things like that. And sometimes they do. But there's a lot of evidence outside. In addition to that, I would say there's lots of archaeological evidence for, that supports Christianity. In fact, there's been no archaeological discoveries that have disproved um, Christianity or the Bible. There have been loads that have been found which prove things that it said, even though sometimes scholars said, well, that can't be true, and then it's been proved to be true. I guess Luke, uh, I could get quite nerdy at this point, so I'm going to try, I'm just going to skip over this, but Luke um, is probably the most accurate uh, of the writers, and somebody said it like this, in all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. He also correctly names all the individuals and their titles. Okay, so people like Pilate, Herod, Augustus, Sergius Paulus, Proconsul of Cyrus, Cyprus, Felix, Festus, Herogrippa, Quirinius, Licinius the Tetrarch. He gets all their names right. I mean, I, I struggle sometimes with people on the Alpha course. <laughs> but, uh, but this guy, you know, he gets all the names right of all the people. Um, and, and he records it actually. Also, there have been things that have been dug up that Luke said, you know, there's like, um, well, Pontius Pilate, there's an inscription that was dug up in 1961, which has his name and his title on it. There's, uh, there's loads of these. So if you're interested, perhaps you want to speak to me afterwards. I don't I'll give you one other. There's a guy called Erastus, who's mentioned in Acts. Um, in, he was in Corinth, he was the treasurer um, in Acts, and there is a stone that has his name carved into it, and basically said, I paid for this. Um, so he's the chief treasurer, so he's obviously conscious of money. There's also evidence that Augustus Caesar was the first Caesar ever to order a census. I could go on. Okay, I really could, and I'm not going to because of time. So that's evidence outside the Bible. And I want to say evidence inside the Bible. And uh, well, somebody said, well, I can't trust the Bible. It's all, it's all been changed down the years. It's been twisted by the church. You can't really believe that stuff. It's all made up. Well, no, it hasn't. And I want, at this point, I want the, uh, the textual criticism uh, slide up, if that's all right. Now, textual criticism, for those who have been on Alpha or have heard it elsewhere, this is really, if you, people say, well, I think it's all made up, you really have to try and understand this. And uh, not everybody gets it, um, but I'm sure all of you will today. Okay, so if you want to look at that, you've got... For example, Herodotus and Thucydides, or how you say it, they wrote around 450 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 years after that, uh, 900 AD, which is 1,300 years after us. And there's only eight copies. Do you get it? So there's only eight copies of that. Um, Tacitus, there's a thousand year gap, there's only 20 copies. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, 950 year gap, there's eight copies. Livy's Roman History, 900 year gap. 20 copies. Now, if you look at that, you think, well, that's, that's quite a big gap, but nobody has any problem with the top part of that list. Well, that, they're all true, aren't they? All those various historical accounts. But then when you look at the Bible, it's absolutely colossal amount, 24,300, which is Greek, Latin, and other bits. And actually, there's an additional 36,000 sightings in the early Christian writers. 
Now, why does I, why does I, why do I find this really? I find, I find this. I find it really interesting. Perhaps it's just me. But the reason is that if basically you cannot say the gospels are not uh, are made up. Okay, and I, if I explain that, if you look at you imagine here we've got all these documents, 24,000 documents, all describing bits of the Bible, some of the complete text, some of the bits and pieces. And you say, well, they, there's a gap of 300 years. And actually there's a very short gap for some of them, only 30 years. But all these documents, when you compare them, they're all almost identical to what was written originally. You imagine there's something back here, a bit like a a seed, and then it spreads out, and it's written and copied and copied and copied and copied, and there's loads and loads of copies. And you look at all these copies, and they're all the same. You have to conclude that the original was the original. Does that make sense? Say yes. I'll just pretend it makes sense. Good. And, um, but it really does. It really is a very compelling piece of evidence that you cannot say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a, is a fiction, are fictional works. No, they said, they wrote down what they saw, what they heard, what others saw, what others heard, and they put it into writing. So you cannot say we don't have an accurate version of what happened. Okay, you can lose the slide. So that's the first thing, textual criticism. I find that very helpful. The second thing I want to look at is the evidence um, for the fulfillment of prophecy. And this is, again, I was, when I was a teenager, I used to struggle, I think, intellectually with my faith because... In, um, there's a lot of negativity towards Christianity in schools. Well, that's what I found. And so, and when I came across this, I think this is a very compelling piece of evidence. And basically, what is it? What am I talking about? Well, and this is the same for the early Christian messengers. They were very careful to show that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament. So all that had been written before was fulfilled in Jesus. And there are lots of prophecies which were written at least 400 years before Jesus about the Messiah about what he would come to do. And you can see that Jesus systematically fulfilled um, all of them, and those he didn't will be fulfilled in eternity. Now, if you just take 61 of the major prophecies, um, people say, well, there's 61 major ones, okay. People say, well, surely he could have contrived it. He kind of, he read the stuff about the Messiah, and he thought, well, I'm going to try and sort that out. But it just doesn't work. If you look at things like that the place of his birth and the manner of his birth was described, that there was, I'll just go through some of these, I find it really interesting, that it, it prophesied that he would experience rejection, betrayal, that he'd be condemned despite his innocence, he would have a dignified silence in the face of his accusers, he would be struck, spat upon by his enemies, mocked and insulted, his hands and, fierce, hands and feet would be pierced. His garments would be cast lots for. He would suffer alongside criminals. His bones would not be broken. He would die as a sacrifice for sin. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb and his body would not see decay. Now, how do you fulfill that? Okay, how do you fulfill that? It's not possible. Okay, it really is true. Christianity really is true. Okay, and um, I don't know why I'm getting emotional about it, but there we are. <laughs> it's true. And. Um, this is, again, the probability for this is, is, gets ludicrous. If you say, well, let's try and take all these probabilities together. One guy said, if you just take eight of them 
Okay, the problem is is one in ten to the power of 17. Again, John Campbell's okay so far. <laughs> I think the rest of us are struggling. Um, and he says, a bit like covering Texas with silver coins and picking out the exact right one. Uh, two feet, silver coins two feet deep. Oh, wait, let's forget that. All right, so it's basically, that's right. And then if you take all 61, it becomes even higher, 10 to the power of, you know, whatever. So logically... Uh, there's strong evidence for fulfillment of prophecy. And then, you, in what you, we've not even gotten to the resurrection, and uh, time is slipping. Well, I just want to say this. When you look at the resurrection, are you open-minded? A guy called Timothy Keller said this, that often people short-circuit their investigation of the resurrection because they have a bias that miracles are not possible. So they say, well, miracles are not possible, so I'm going to ignore the resurrection. But actually... That is, that is short-circuiting the process of really looking at it. Um, but actually, the first century reaction to the resurrection of the dead was also disbelief. You look at someone like Thomas. Well, unless I see it with my hands, or touch it with my they didn't. They weren't expecting a resurrection. But the evidence of the resurrection is the strongest thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the, ever, if the resurrection is, is, didn't happen, then Christianity is a sham. There's nothing to it. It stakes everything on this question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if Jesus did rise from the dead, then you have to take this seriously. You can't ignore it. Um, You can't say there's no rationality for it. So what is the evidence? Well, there there probably isn't time this morning to go through everything. Uh, I just want to give a few little snippets so that you can then do your own exploration. You can look through the, the Gospels, look through the accounts, look at the details. Be like a, a Sherlock Holmes and say, okay, well, I'm going to look at these details. Clive Kite, who shared on the video earlier, that was his approach. He, um, he's a bright guy as well. He, he looked at the Gospels and said, well, actually, as he compared the Gospels, he came up with this one thing, that if there are slight discrepancies in the Gospels, you know, oh, slight discrepancies, but he said, that shows they weren't making it all up and making sure their story is fitted 100% accurately as a sign of evidence. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But there are all kinds of things that really blow the mind. One thing I I find interesting is there's an eyewitness account of the piercing of Jesus' side. It says that blood and water flowed from his side as he was pierced on the cross. They're going to break his legs, but they decided to pierce his side. And an eyewitness specifically of the blood and water. Now we know medically now, that means his heart was ruptured. They were just observing, and he saw blood and water. Okay, so he really died. The theories that say Jesus didn't die um, don't hold up at all. Um, the first witnesses were women. Now, if you're a New Testament writer, you wouldn't put that in if you're trying to be convincing and, and make a good story. No offence to half the group, half of oh dear, well have I done? But, it, I'm just saying, in that time, the evidence of women was completely... Um, I mean, they probably would have felt the pressure to sort of cut that bit out, but they didn't, they left it in. Um, I like the bit where John outruns Peter to the tomb. In John's version of the account, he says, we, were, we ran to the tomb, and I got there first. Now, that is such a man thing to say. It's like, yeah, just want to put that in, just in case people weren't sure. Um, there's all kinds of details, like... Uh, like, well, the number of appearances. He appeared on 11 different occasions over a period of six weeks. There was a real physical uh, quality to these appearances. He talked with them. He ate with them. He was held. 
um, he cooked breakfast. It wasn't sort of a hallucination thing. It was, it was a very physical experience. Um, at one time it says he appeared to over 500 people. And Paul says, these people are still here today. If you want to check it out, go and talk to them effectively in his communication. Okay, there's a lot of people that he was saying saw Jesus risen from the dead. Um, and then there's things like the dramatic change in the disciples and the huge spread of the early church. They convinced 3,000 people on one day that this was true. And that takes some doing. And then it literally turned the whole Roman world, the whole world upside down. Um, and you say, well, how did that happen? And if you look at it with an open mind, you think the, the best answer to that is logically he really must have risen from the dead because nothing else could have caused that nothing else could have caused that explosion or the fact that all 11 all but one of the disciples went to their death saying I saw Jesus risen from the dead all one of them died Blaise Pascal who's a scientist said I believe witnesses who get their throats cut prepared to stand up and die claiming that okay so there's lots, and I've, I've only just scratched the surface there. I'd recommend Timothy Keller's book, Reason for God, or various ones by Josh McDowell, if you want to look at that and really open it. In fact, there are lots of historians who deliberately went out of their way to prove the resurrection was false, but then in the process became Christians. So it's a dangerous thing to do if you're, if you're not sure. But why, why not explore it? What's holding you back? I want to finally just touch on experiential evidence and um, basically I guess Clive's testimony is a good example of that there are millions and millions of Christians both currently and historically who have said I I made that step to God and I experienced him now you have to discount all of that if you say there is no God there is no truth you have to say well all of that is nonsense but there's also experiential evidence as an unbeliever. I've, I've, when I was stuck in Delhi earlier in the year, uh, on that, uh, in that hotel, I, I managed to read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which is something, having led Alpha Course, I should have done years ago. But anyway, let's not confess that. And, um, but I read this, and I found it really interesting. He, he, he said that as an atheist, he had this inner nagging sense something was not right. And I think Clive was saying the same thing. There's an inner sense that something's not right. And his first uh, section of the book is right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And I find this section particularly interesting. He said, for years, he said, if his problem was this. He said, if a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I simply refused to listen to Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling, whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by an intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then, that threw me back into another difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? He goes on to say, consequently atheism turns out to be too simple. And that whole section basically, I hope um, I'm making sense, is this... Where does right and wrong come from? Why do human beings have such a, a strong sense of right and wrong? Because if it's all naturalistic, you know, there's no right and wrong. We can do what we like. And actually, 
the real reason I think that people hold back is that they're afraid of, of facing up to things in their lives. That it says that in Romans 1, for example, it says that God has proved he exists through the universe. If you look at the enormity of the universe, it shows the, the eternal qualities of God so that men are without excuse. Actually, God has demonstrated in the universe, proving he exists, but men suppress the truth because it's like they want to keep away from the light. That makes sense. So there's, an, there's an argument that actually there's this suppression that goes on. And then the, so the experience of the unbeliever, and the experience of the believer is basically, it works. I prayed a prayer, something like this when I was uh, quite young, but it was this. God, it's not exactly a faithful prayer, but it was this. God, if you're real, come into my life. You know, when I prayed that prayer, I experienced God. And it, that's all you can say, really. It was real. As you step out on the, the step of faith, that sometimes it looks... You know, it's not easy to become a Christian. It's not easy to believe. But also, it's not easy to dis- suppress Christianity and say there's nothing in it and it's all nonsense. And Jesus can make a real difference to your life, okay? So I would encourage you that if, if this is maybe still early days for you and you're still thinking it through, I'd encourage you to do the Alpha course that starts at the end of September. But I just thought there may be somebody here who has been battling, and there was a lot of stuff earlier on in the meeting, encouraging you to take that step. I wanted to give you the opportunity to pray to become a Christian this morning, okay? So I just, if everybody bows, I'm just going to simply read out a prayer that's in the back of the Alpha Course book, which just is a, a guide for people to become a Christian. Okay? And then I'm not going to... Uh, I just want you to do it. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front or anything like that. I just want you to take that opportunity. If that's you and you, you're ready today, then I just want you to, to pray this with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Okay? And this is the first step. You're saying, I'm, I'm sorry that I've held you back and I've not responded sooner. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.